The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Where are you exactly? Uh, Northeastern Caribbean Command Outpost. <laughs> I, I didn't know he had opened a bureau in where? St. Martin? Uh, no, St. St. Bart's. Actually, we had a, a bit of a, a hassle getting here. I heard you had a bomb scare that shut down the St. Martin's airport. So the place was just jammed with angry people. Um, can, can I just stop you there? Why? First world problems, dude. You're going to St. Bart's. Took you a little extra time. How's the Mai Tai? You know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. I'm sitting down to do the podcast here in the villa, and my wife comes up to me. She says, okay, what do you need to drink? <laughs> so, wow. She, yeah, I know. It was awesome. She went into the into the, into the the cabinet and found uh, some, some creek and spice rum, mixed it up with some Coke and some ice cubes, and here I am. And, and she's wearing a bikini and everything. Mm. All right. Uh, you ready for the big show? Yeah, let's go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Gangnam Style didn't quite break the internet, but after 2 billion views, it forced YouTube to make an upgrade. Guess how many plays it'll take to break the internet this time? The Beatles never existed. That's the latest tinfoil hat theory. We'll break down the four reasons the Fab Four never made the British invasion. Our GNB gift guide keeps expanding. We'll help you suffer through the club scene and also keep your hearing intact. Plus, the top 25 songs of 2014, all in four minutes thanks to DJ Earworm. You. Yeah, I know. <laughs> all right. And now... Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Gangnam Style allegedly broke the internet, but we know that's not completely true. Open Gangnam Style. No, it, it, it broke the counter that YouTube uses to count views. There's a weird algorithmic thing that goes along with it. Let me see if I can find it. It says, uh, this is uh, from Google+. Plus. YouTube, which is, of course, owned by Google, post posted this. We never thought a video would be watched in numbers greater than a 32-bit integer. And in this case, 2,147,483,647 views. Gangnam Style has been viewed so many times that they had to upgrade to a 96-bit integer. No, 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 64-bit. And what? what is this number? That's 9 trillion views. No, no, it's not 9 trillion. It's more than that. No? 9 quintillion, 223 quadrillion, 372 trillion, <laughs> 36 billion, 854 million, 775,808. And how long do you think it'll take for them to have to switch from 32-bit to 64 to 128. If you would like to push YouTube to the next breaking point, you need to take another look at the video as we push things towards that number, which should happen in, it says five to seven years, but I doubt that because it's going to have to be on some sort of algorithmic increase, but uh, an exponential increase. But nine, what did I say? Quintillion? It sounds to me like Gangnam Style might be the new Rick Roll. Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's amazing that we've, we finally, that, that a 32 bit integer number of views 
broke the internet to a certain extent. That, I think that's fascinating. Just to give you some insight into um, the integer issue, you, you think of a, of a, of a byte, uh, a single letter of the alphabet takes up eight bits. That was the olden days. Now, one letter can take up to 32 bits. And now in this case, they've had to upgrade it to 64 bits just to keep track of single numbers. Well, and this is... I think in, uh, emblematic of a larger uh, issue because if a music video can break the 32 integer rule, um, how many other things are happening on the internet right now that are approaching that two billion mark that are going to you know roll over that counter? This is kind of this is the equivalent of the Y2K situation. I was just going to say I'm surprised Google hadn't thought about this in advance that at some point somebody might push it to two billion views overall because that's exactly what happened uh, with the Y2K. The, the counters weren't designed to handle more than two digits. I'm surprised that nothing you know no no uh, nuclear miss missiles were launched or power plants went uh, uh, China syndrome on this. One. There are non-nerds who will say that, uh, yeah, you know, Y2K was a hoax. It was fake. There's nothing real to it because, you know, after all, nothing happened. Do you know why nothing happened on December 31st, 1999 at 11.59 p.m.? Because all of us nerds were frantically working in the background to ensure that nothing did happen. Well, yeah. And there was that guy from, where is it, from Brampton, from Toronto, who, uh, who was the, the, the chief alarm sounder in this whole thing. And he was vilified afterwards because nothing happened. Yeah. All because he did his job right. Yeah, nothing happened because we all heard about it and we all made the unnecessary adjustments. And, and there were a couple of things. I mean, you know, back with these old DOS counters, I mean, there, there, were, there were a couple of small incidents, but, you know, we didn't have power plants go offline. We didn't have, uh, you know, the, the you know, Skynet coming to life or, or any of that sort of thing. It was fine. But the uh, big crazy conspiracy theory of the week is that the Beatles never existed. Well, she loves you. Did you hear about this before I posted? It's from uh, thebeatlesneverexisted.com. It's been making the rounds on the Intertron. Yeah, I, I had never heard of this until the past, this past week. And frankly, okay, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Um, I've always wondered how four guys from Liverpool could be so prolific and so so much so the geniuses when it came to the the pop music not only in the music that they made in the beginning but how they evolved over the next seven or eight years and if you study the beatles and their songwriting their song arranging how they record all these i mean it, it is absolutely mind-boggling how good they were so there are people who refuse to believe that the Beatles were any good at all and that they uh, had four guys that were swapped in and out uh, continuously over those four years and in order to maintain that high level of, of songwriter, of, of musicianship. According to this website, there are four key clues that tell us that they swapped these guys in and out over the course of the career of the Beatles. Yeah, the, the uh, Wi-Fi here at the Northeastern Caribbean Command Center is kind of slow, so uh, I'll let you go through that. Height discrepancies. You got a text message there, by the way, from Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah. Different eyebrows, the ears, 
and the teeth. Now, when it comes to the height discrepancies, uh, they've got a collection of photos that prove without a doubt that uh, they were different guys over the years because their heights fluctuated. No one's heard of platform shoes? Well, that's a weird one. I'd never heard of that one before. I'm trying to remember all the conspiracy theories that went into, into the Paul is dead thing after Sergeant Pepper. And uh, I think there was a height discrepancy issue, but again, that can be, that's all about shoes. The different eyebrows, did it not occur to anyone at thebeatlesneverexisted.com that maybe they had women in their lives who said, you know, the monobrow thing's just not working for you. Well, and you gotta figure that these were the most successful and most famous musicians in the world. Do you think they had stylists? Yep. But the big one, the biggest of them all, forget the teeth, it's the ears. They have a couple of photos of different Beatles, specifically Paul McCartney, that prove because the earlobes changed, this was a different guy, as opposed to maybe the guy just got a haircut. He either got a haircut or he had been wearing heavy earrings that may have distorted his earlobes. If you want to know more, you got to go to the website because it looks like it was done by a 13-year-old kid in his mother's basement in 1992. It is a fun website to look at, especially if you're one of those truther type people who believe that 9-11 was an inside job and that uh, Oswald acted uh, as part of a, a mob conspiracy. And uh, what else can we talk about? This is not. Don't, don't go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, this is this is this is not at the level of World Trade Center 7. Please, it is not. Um, but it's it's fun to look at, I guess. You know. We seem to have a theme going on here. We've got this list of reasons for admission to an insane asylum in the 1800s. Did you see this? No. I posted this on the Geeks and Beats Facebook page. From 1864 to 1889, Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum accepted patients for a variety of reasons. Now, uh, how's the Wi-Fi there at uh, the uh, Northern Caribbean Command Compound there? North, You've got to look at this. Northeastern Caribbean, I think. Oh, you're... my apologies. This reads like a... Battle of the Metal Bands. We have to do like a Battle of the Metal Bands ad with this. Okay, go. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. It's the Battle of the Bands. One night only. Maple Leaf Gardens, Saturday, December 23rd, 8.17 p.m. Featuring... Kicked in the head by a horse. Ill treatment by husband. Opium habits. Hysteria. Nymphomania. Novel reading. And bad habits and political excitement. With special guests. Rumor of husband murder. Plus, gunshot wound. Female disease. Self-abuse. Dissipation of nerves. And your special appearance by Religious Enthusiasm. Opening act, uterine disarrangement. Holy crap. You know, this is rather interesting. This is from 1864 to 1889. Uh, okay. Way back when, my grandmother bought a book from a traveling salesman. And I think it was called the Columbia Home Encyclopedia of Health. And this was 19... 48, 1949. And basically, it was for people on the farm. And it was a, a how-to guide of all sorts of diseases and ailments. You know, everything from childbirth to insanity. And I remember looking up, and they would have, you know, the heading insanity. And then they would have the symptoms underneath it. And there were a whole bunch of, you know, normal sort of symptoms that you would expect. But the one that caught me was, the very last symptom was 
Skin smells like wet mice. <laughs> no, there's a metal band for you. I know, I know. And I've never forgotten that. So if ever, if ever you run into somebody whose skin smells like wet light and mice, well, then you know that you've got some insanity on your hands. Cut the cord and go to geeksandbeats.com anytime. You'll get the latest episode and links to the stories the boys are talking about. Geeksandbeats.com. Also available on 8-track and cassette. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. So the uh, Geeks and Beats uh, holiday gift guide has uh, taken off on the big uh, site, and we've been adding more and more, and you found yet another idea for the geek in your life. It's the Mars Levitating Bluetooth Speaker. I've seen a couple of these things now. They're Bluetooth speakers that have some sort of mag- magnetic levitation device within them mm-hmm. that allows some sort of either sphere or, in this particular case, a saucer to float in midair above this, this speaker. And this, uh, this Mars levitating Bluetooth thing, it looks like a, basically it looks like a trash can if it's just sort of sitting there. But if you turn it on, uh, the, the lid of the trash can uh, levitates to what looks like what? One, two inches above the top. Which is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I mean, you know, if you need and at one hundred ninety nine dollars, it's not terribly expensive, especially if you've you know got one of uh, you know the, the the Beats portable speakers or a Jambox or something like that. Um, and apparently, the it's it's round and big because uh, the the bottom half of it uh, works as a uh, as a subwoofer. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'll post the uh, the video. It's about as tall as as a quart of milk. Yeah, so it, it would look kind of cool because I think the the rim of the garbage can lid lights up. Ooh, and it's Bluetooth 4. It's got a cylindrical charging station that doubles, as you point out, that subwoofer and a pair of two USB ports for charging your smartphone. So you plug, obviously you have to plug this thing in. It's also waterproof at up to three feet. So you could put it on the dock, but you wouldn't want to put it on the boat. Right. Right. Why would you... Just in case you're doing some underwater basket weaving. Yeah, for down to three feet. I, I would imagine that just says, okay, it's it's waterproof when it comes to... Uh, the kitchen. Yeah, you know, the kitchen, just sitting on the rain in the yard, that kind of thing. You've also uh, found a pair of headphones that aren't actually headphones, they're, he- they're earplugs. These are interesting because, I see, I used to have to spend all kinds of time at nightclubs. I'm mean, doing the DJ thing. I did the DJ thing for years and years and years. It's one of the big reasons why I got into news instead of music. Yeah, I mean, listen, it was an easy way to make money. Or I'd see, it wasn't well, it wasn't easy, but it was it was a Did it get you the chicks? That was the only thing I thought it might do for oh, me. No, nothing. Not even close, not a sniff. <laughs> uh, but there were two things that, uh, but, but they did pay in cash. <laughs> the chicks? No, <laughs> no, the club owners. When I finally, when they finally decided to pay me at the end of the night, that helped. Uh, that helped put a down payment on a house. Really, they did. But uh, there were two things that I absolutely hated about doing nightclubs. The first, this is back in the days when smoking was still allowed. So I would come home at two or three o'clock in the morning, and I'd have to stand uh, underneath the shower. I could not live with myself. So I, I would stand underneath the shower, and the water would hit my hair, and this puff of nicotine and secondhand smoke would come out of my hair. It was disgusting. I just hated it. I think if that's in my hair 
what's in my lungs. I've got an image of the Alfred Hitchcock scene Ugh. from Psycho with instead of it being blood swirling down the drain, it's nicotine. Ugh, it was awful. And the other thing I did not like was that horrible ringing in my ears that came from, you know, the, 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 the loud music. Now, I would always stay up in the DJ booth where it was slightly quieter, but if you were to go down on the dance floor and you were surrounded by bass bins and high-frequency uh, drivers, I mean, it was really loud because we would be pumping thousands of watts onto that dance floor. And, and the other thing that, that, and, you know, I would sometimes go to clubs later and, and, and you know, people would want to go and hang out, whatever, but I, I, I never really enjoyed it that much because I can't stand holding a conversation over top of really loud music. It's, I find it exhausting. I find it, I can't hear what they're saying. They can't hear what I'm saying. People get too close to you. They end up spitting in your face and vice versa. I, I, I'm just not, not into it. However, had I had access to these, uh, these new earphones or one of the earplugs, I guess, uh, that uh, it's, what they do is they, they cut down on all the the harmful extraneous noise and the high volume. They're called dubs, and apparently at 25 bucks each, they sold a million of them in just two straight months. At uh, You can get them at Best Buy and music festivals and things of that nature, according to Larry Lutstein, who's written for you there on uh, a journal of musicalthings.com. Mm -hmm. Listen, the, anything I am all for uh, protecting your hearing, because once your hearing goes, it's it's gone. It's never coming back. So What? Yeah. So I have um, a pair of, uh, I, I spent $200 getting some custom earplugs mm. that, I take, that I take with me to concerts right now. Um, because that was really the only thing you could get other than those little foamy things that you can buy at the drugstore, which admittedly are better than nothing, but certainly aren't good as something that can actually filter out those highs and lows. And for 25 bucks, and if you do go to a lot of clubs, you just maybe like to dance or, or, or whatever it is, or you like to go to shows, please, people, buy some of these earplugs, the good ones, because uh, when you get into your 50s and 60s, you'll look back and think, yeah, I'm glad I did because my friends can't hear a damn thing, but I can. Geeks and Beats uh, update on the whole gift guide. You can go to our website, geeksandbeats.com, if you want to check that out. Meantime, we've got a new co-producer for this week's show. Many thanks uh, to uh, Jason McLennan, who's a big fan of yours from the early CFNY afternoon uh, show days and the ongoing history of new music. He found the podcast trolling on iTunes last year, and he says he's been a faithful listener ever since. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. So all you need to do is go to geeksandbeats.com. You can sign up to be a co-producer. All you need to do is just like Hollywood. You open your wallet, you pay 25 bucks, you don't lift a finger. How are we doing with the bank account? Well, we just blew the budget by uh, sending some miracle travel mugs of traveling uh, to the uh, Bell Media Radio Network guys who made it possible for us to be across the country here. So uh, we're back down to pretty much 25 bucks, thanks to Jason. I, uh, By the way, speaking of the Bell Radio Network, that was one thing that uh, sealed the deal with our William Shatner interview. Oh, excellent. So when are we talking to him? I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. I am going to, I have 15 minutes with him on February 2nd. Excellent. The man's busy for the rest of December, 
and he is working on some kind of production throughout January. So uh, Kathleen, his assistant, uh, apologizes and says, the only thing I can do for you is 15 minutes on February 2nd. I will book the day off. Okay. Mr. Tambourine Man. Hey. One of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. So when it comes to the holidays, there's nothing we can do to avoid it. The music is here, and the most performed holiday song from the last 100 years is not White Christmas. Uh... Yeah, this is rather interesting because it is a survey done by ASCAP, the American Association of... (laughs) What did you call me? (laughs) No, your asshat, this is ASCAP. Um, they're they're the, one of the big, just spit out my scotch. <laughs> this is this is one of the big collectives in the United States. They're the one that are in charge of music publishing and performing rights, and they've been around for uh, for a century. And uh, around this time every year, they put out a bunch of lists regarding um, which of their members' songs have been played or performed the most. And this includes radio airplay, uh, television performances, uh, other people. Performing the show, uh, the other people covering the song, song concert, all that sort of stuff. So they're able to track all this. And uh, because it's Christmas, they decide what they would do is they go back into their archives and they find out which Christmas song has been performed the most in their history. Now, keep in mind that this has nothing to do with uh, BMI, which is another uh, American based uh, music publisher, music collective, CSAC, another American. Uh, music collective uh, BPI which is in the UK um, there's one in Germany every, every territory has their own but ASCAP is the biggest so we can actually take this and, and, and run with it a little bit so according to them the song that has been played the most or performed the most the Christmas song since 1914 has been and this really surprised me is Santa Claus is Coming to Town by John Frederick Coots And Haven Gillespie, they uh, wrote this song back in 1934 when Eddie Cantor needed something to sing during the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade broadcast in New York. There was a Mm -hmm. broadcast and they needed something. And um, um, he... um, I'm sorry, is that Picard again? No, that's Courtney. Oh, Courtney Hall. Courtney, yes, Courtney Love just texted me. And uh, let's see what she says. I said, I'm in St. Bart's. 
And I asked her if she needed anything, and she says... Pack of smokes. No, she says, uh, can you need anything? Bring me back Moustique, which is another island. Uh, but have fun. Okay. John Frederick Coots composed over 700 songs and over a dozen Broadway shows, and uh, him, along with Gillespie, as you pointed, in 1934, wrote the lyrics to the biggest hit for both of them. There is a great book right, uh, right now called Tara Boomdie by Simon Napier Bell that talks about the history of music publishing and you would think by that description it's really really dull but it's not and he goes he goes into this whole business about how the era when there were songwriters and then there were performers and in the you know this is basically the way it, it existed in, in the music industry up until the 1960s so you would have guys like Fred Coots and Haven Gillespie who were professional songwriters and I what they would do is they would crank out song after song after song on spec for professional singers. So, like I said, they were, they were uh, commissioned to create this song for the 1934 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And uh, that version, along with several subsequent versions that came in the next few years, were complete chart stiffs. But then in 1957, Perry Como recorded it. It became a huge hit. And after that, it morphed into this giant Christmas classic that's been covered by, you know, half the planet. And, you know, Bruce Springsteen's Santa Claus is Coming to Town, that's probably the most, the most famous version of it these days. Um, the second most popular song for Christmas is called The Christmas Song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. That was written by Mel Torme and Robert Wells in 1944. And once Nat King Cole and his orchestra got a hold of it in 1946, it caught fire and then it became this, this giant hit. It's only when we get to number three that we find White Christmas, written by a Jewish man, Irving Berlin, by the swimming pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel in 15 minutes uh, in 1941, gave it to Bing Crosby, and it, it is the biggest selling Christmas song of all time, and maybe one of the biggest selling singles of all time, because the estimates are that it sold like 100 million copies, but it may be the biggest seller, but it is not the most performed song. What a stark contrast to this year's top 25 songs from the Billboard Hot 100. This time last year, I played for you DJ Earworm's 2013 list of the top 25 songs. Have you seen this year's mashup of every single song in a single track? His, what is it, United Hits of America? I, I, I have it, yeah. DJ, I, I met him a couple of years ago at a, uh, at a an event in, uh, for Ad Age in, in New York. Nice guy, really nice guy. And uh, he's very proud of this thing that he does every year. It's really impressive. Oh yeah, he's He's a mashup king. Do what you wanna do.
I'm sort of using this mashup that he does every year as some sort of indication as to how old I'm getting. <laughs> Time to pack it in. My Logan's run is done. Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. Every time I get a new iPhone, I sync my music and I think I lose about a third of it. Speaking of being here at the Northeastern Caribbean Command Outpost, I ran into a problem two years ago. Let me explain. I every every morning while I'm here, I go for a run up from the town of Gustavia to a high point on the island, which is called Lurin. It's a very very steep run. You run from basically sea level to about 240 meters above sea level. I'm getting winded just thinking of it. It's a very, very steep, very, very difficult run. And the song that gets me motivated uh, and just happens to be in the right BPMs for my pace up this hill is the Dropkick Murphys and their cover of ACDC's uh, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. I tell you folks, it's harder than it looks. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. It is perfect. And I, uh, a number of years ago, I made sure that that song was in my playlist because it's something that I look forward to every year. At the bottom of this hill, I find it in, in my in my iPod or my iPhone. You hit it, and that, that's the beginning of my, my exercise. A couple of years ago, even though I know, I know it was in my iPod or my iPhone, it was not there. And I'd run across a couple of other situations where songs that I had not purchased from iTunes somehow disappeared from my playlists. And I thought it was just me or I thought it was just some corruption of some file. But apparently not, huh? According to attorney Patrick Colon of the U.S. District Court of Oakland, California, quote, you guys decided to give them the worst possible experience and blow up a user's music library. They've alleged to have deleted music that iPod and iPhone users had from competing music services between 2007 and 2009. Hmm. And according to the attorney general, or the attorney, uh, Apple had directed uh, the uh, system to not tell the users about the problem, that when a user downloaded music from arrival service and try to sync it to their library, Apple displayed an error message and instructed the user to restore to factory settings. So they did that and poof, all of that music from the rival services disappeared. So the rival services would have been what? Uh, MP3.com? Who else? This is 2017. Well, that's kind of the thing is back then there really weren't that many other options other than stealing stuff off Napster. Yeah. Uh, my Dropkick Murphy song would have been ripped from an MP, ripped from a CD that I own. Exactly. So I'm wondering if that was 
was caught up in the sweep somehow. Phil Schiller, Apple's head of marketing, is expected to testify this week, and portions of a videotaped 2011 deposition by Stephen Jobs himself will get played. Yeah. The late Stephen Jobs. He is actually uh, testifying against his own company. I'm just, okay, well, that'll be very interesting. I mean, this, this, this goes back to a piece of software called Music Match Jukebox. Did you ever use that? I never did. I saw it, but I didn't want to spend the money on it. I actually spent $20 for the Lifetime Upgrade membership because I really liked it. And the thing that I loved about it was that uh, it ripped CDs faster than any other uh, CD encoder or MP3 encoder that I'd ever encountered. And back in 2007, that was a big deal. Oh, it was really, really quick. I mean, it talking was, about it like it was 50 years ago. Yeah, well, it would rip it 15 times or 17 times or 20 times or even 36 times in certain cases. And I loved it. And it was one of the things I really liked about it is that uh, it had a reset button. So you could, you know, it could recompile your library. So if your library was looking a little funky in the playlist window and the library window it had, you could hit this button and it would go and rescan your library and reload things properly. And I, I really liked Music Max, uh, Music Match Jukebox. Uh, the the um, interface was a bit funky, but it was really good. But then, you know, iTunes came along and by then I had bought my first iPod, which is your gateway drug to the whole Apple ecosystem. And eventually, uh, against my will, I just said, okay, fine, we'll just convert everything over to iTunes because it's just easier. And uh, so I, I, I miss Music, Mac, uh, Music Match Jukebox, and I have a certain amount of sympathy for them in this particular case because they're the ones that brought it forward, and they're suing for $350 million, which is nothing. I mean, that's the kind of money you'll find you know, left in the change bins at, uh, of the vending machines at One Infinite Loop. So it's, it's not a lot of money, but it's interesting to hear about how these songs may or may have been deleted by by Apple. Apple contends the moves were legitimate security measures and the security director over at Apple is testifying that Apple didn't offer a more detailed explanation because they don't need to give users too much information because they because we are easily confused. Are you easily confused? No, it's either there or it's not. Right. When it is supposed to be there and it's not there, that's when I get confused. Seven famous fictional places you can explore with the Oculus Rift. Do you have a desire to buy this 3D virtual reality headset or what? No. I, no? I, no. I've used the Oculus Rift, and they sat me down in a chair for one key reason. They say that um, people tend to fall over because they get so immersed in the 3D experience that this virtual reality headset offers that you have to be concerned about people's safety and, and, and all of that. So they sat me down, and then they put me on a roller coaster, and it was uh, done using the Unreal Engine, which is that video game uh, system. And the graphics were pixelated. I could tell I was looking at a computer-generated object, but because the head tracking on the Oculus Rift is so spot on, your brain ignores the pixelation of the image it's seeing and accepts what it's looking at as real to the point where as I'm going down the roller coaster and I'm not a roller coaster guy, I actually had to close my eyes at some points to avoid throwing up. 
okay was there any latency that's my point there was zero latency so your brain didn't go hey wait a minute what's wrong with this picture it's not real your brain accepted it as real and gizmodo.com has found um, some really neat uses for the oculus rift that people have come up with Uh, for example would you like to sit in jerry seinfeld's apartment somebody's done an oculus rift version of that the bridge of Star Trek Voyager, the deck of the Firefly Serenity, the Peter Griffin house from Family Guy, the Star Trek Next Generation bridge is in there as well, but the one that I care most about, the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Greetings, mortals. Jared Petty here for IGN. I'm joined by... Frank Knight. And uh, Frank, uh, what are we looking at here? So this is the video that was tweeted out by both the StarWars.com Twitter account and, of course, J.J. Abrams' Twitter account, the director of the new Star Wars movie. And this is the Millennium Falcon uh, from Episode 7. Looks That's like right. our first official look. We've seen we've seen some leaked stuff. We've seen the set builds. We've seen some stuff from the skylines. And we see the Millennium Falcon. And then we see... Dun-dun-dun! The Batmobile on the Millennium Falcon. That's right. And why are we getting the Batmobile on the Millennium Falcon here, Frank? So this is a, a long-running kind of a little Twitter war between J.J. Abrams, the director of the new Star Wars movie, and Zack Snyder, the director of the upcoming Batman v Superman. When you had your demo, besides the roller coaster, what else was there? That was the only thing they showed me. Mm. And, and that's all well and good. This was two years ago, so they've advanced substantially since then. But what's fascinating about this is Oculus was bought by the folks over at Facebook. Yeah. And we don't really know why. Nobody seems to understand what it is they hope to accomplish with it. And all we can do is hope that they're not trying to turn it into some giant virtual mall experience. That maybe there is still a a gaming kind of experience to be had with it by and large. But people have sat down using various rendering engines and given you the ability to wander through some of the most fascinating and nerdy spaceships in the science fiction universe. I would really, okay, if we're going to do that, I would really like to take a Oculus Rift tour through NCC 1701. Well, you can't do 1701. You can do 1701D because Jean-Luc Picard's version is there. All right, whatever. Uh, I, wouldn't that be the cooler one of, of the two anyway? Well, Considering the original one, the TOS was all just dots and bizarre kind of weird flashing lights. Well, that, that's that's true. But I, you know, I've always wondered, you know, where is engineering in respect to the bridge? And, you know, how do the turbo lifts work? And when they say that there has been a hull breach on deck 34, where is that? And, you know, where are the Jeffries tubes? And, you know, I would like to be able to, okay, I've, okay, I've really betrayed myself as a nerd. Uh, you really have. Wow. You know, I'd like to be able to go down to the shuttle bay at the back and then, you know, maybe out front to the, uh, the deflector array and all that sort of stuff. I would like to be able to navigate uh, around the the enterprise. When I was uh, much much younger, I would go into Cole's bookstores, and I never bought one. But you could go to the science fiction section, and they would sell you blueprints of NCC seventeen oh one. And it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was, you take it out and it'd be these giant blueprints and that would show the schematics of, 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 of the enterprise. And you could kind of figure out where everything was, which was cool, but it wasn't like you'd be able to travel through any of these things because it was just 2D on paper, right? So. Come on. What? You didn't actually shell out the cash and buy it? It sounds like you did and you're just not willing to admit it. No, no, it was expensive, and you know, I was still, I was being dropped off at the mall because my sister was going for her Yamaha electone organ lessons. <laughs> so these, these, these were expensive. I mean, they were twenty bucks. 
and you know I'm I'm in you know grade nine, grade ten. If I had come home with twenty dollars worth of Star Trek drawings, I would have been pilloried. Yeah, I can see that. But I I, I would be the kind of people that would go to the Coles bookstore and I would. You were a stealth nerd. I, I was. I, I would snap them open, and then when nobody was looking, I'd pull out one and just kind of scan it and go, oh, okay, that's how that works. That kind of makes sense. And then I'd fold it very carefully and snap it back into the packet. But I never, I never, uh, I asked for it for Christmas a number of times, never got it. Well, I, the fact that they gave you an accordion, I think, really solidified the nerditude. I don't think they needed you also getting into Star Trek. But I could have become a Starship designer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could have. Yeah, you know, they, they, they stunted my, uh, my career development. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes and watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.